Welcome to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Originally aired on KGOS and KERM in Torrington, join Jeff, Jerry, and their special guests as they talk all things gardening in Wyoming. Our Lawn and Garden Podcast helps you improve your home garden or small acreage. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. In studio with me today is Jerry Urshbeck. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Jeff. How are you today? Hey, pretty darn good. Thank you. Excellent. And uh, with us also in studio today is Chrissy Land. She is a community forester from Nebraska. And we will be talking about community forestry, which I don't think a lot of people really know about. But uh, before we dive into that, let's uh, take a moment and listen to some comments from our sponsors. Starting May 18th, some University of Wyoming Extension offices will be open to the public. Contact your local office to learn about your county's variances for COVID-19 restrictions. Even if your county remains closed, you can always contact your local educator by phone or email. Go to wyoextension.org to find your county's contact information. Do you have questions about the coronavirus or COVID-19? Go to uwyocnporg slash coronavirus slash uw-extension to find reliable information, community resources, and recipes using the food in your pantry. Okay, we're back. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. And with us today is Chrissy Land. She is a community forester from, uh, are you in Garing, Chrissy? My office is actually in Scotts Bluff. Okay. Uh, I'm just south of the airport. But oh. I'm going to cover the whole western half of the state. So I am typically on the road most of the time all over the place. Typically. <laughs> typically. <laughs> so, now I get to just fly through Zoom and meet all of my wonderful community partners that way. Right. So um, when, when we talk about community forests and community forestry, what can you tell us about that? Or what, what do you want to share with us about community forestry and what it is that you do? Yeah, when we think about the community forests, we think about community, that's people, and then the forest, the trees. And I always tell people that a community forester is not the same as a forest forester. And that kind of sounds funny, but it makes sense. Sure. We are in a man-made forest more often than we are in a natural-made forest. And so we have a different, different challenges. Um, and a lot of it is just finding the balance between Mother Nature and all of her good things and the, all of our benefits of being people and living among the trees. And so how do we make man-made industrial marry with Mother Nature? And that's ultimately the community forest. We have everything from the trees to the perennials the wildlife, the water management, it's the whole tier of everything. It's not just trees. So is your role primarily an educational role for the public? Do you plan community forests? Do you work with individuals to specifically plant types of trees in the community? Right. So if you were to go to like Fort Collins or even Cheyenne, Wyoming, 
um, they're going to have their own community forester specifically on staff with their municipality. And basically in Western Nebraska and even Eastern Nebraska across the whole state, we have a lot of smaller communities that don't have the budget to have their own independent specific position to pay for a certified arborist slash forester. And so it's basically the Lorax position of the parks department. And because they don't have the budget for that, our state provides two positions, an Eastern community forester and a Western community forester. And so primarily I'm working with a lot of tree boards, which is a part of being Tree City USA. And it's sort of like a parks board. Um, and sometimes it's, it's both. It's a parks board serves as the tree board. But it's the group of people that are working with usually the governing body of a community that identify, you know, the needs of the trees. How much money do we need to budget for removals or street tree planting or park tree maintenance? All of those different things. And usually they're in charge of also doing an Arbor Day celebration, which would have been just here in April. And so I get to do, that's primarily a lot of what I get to do. And then I also do a lot of like educational workshops uh, with the industry and also municipality and then also with like the public. So maybe like a master gardener course, we might step in and do some education. And really it's just, we go by request. So if you want to hear about pruning, if you want to hear about planting or placement or maybe even something more specific, then we get to kind of come in and do a hands-on training with you. Perfect. Jerry, did you have questions you wanted to start off with uh, for Chrissy? Well, I just wanted your opinion. Jeff and I are, are the two of a kind in regard to if we're mowing and we hit a branch with our head, we have a tendency to lob it off. Now, others have said, oh, don't do that. Put a bigger mulch ring around it so it distances you from the tree. What, what's your feeling on that? You know, everyone manages their yard a little bit different. And there's not one wrong way. Wait a minute. That sounds like the politically correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, if that is the way you want to manage your trees, you can. If it was my yard, I would be putting in a larger mulch ring. And you can go all the way out to the edge, the tips of your branches to the drip line and mulch all the way out. But then we have to think about like some of our old lindens or other trees that are going to, you know, have those lower branches that could potentially be like a 25 foot mulch ring. Now, what we could do instead is maybe put sort of a compromise is put in a six foot or an eight foot mulch ring. And then those branches that are lower, if possible, instead of removing them completely at the trunk, we can just stunt them back to the length so that they are only within that mulch ring. So then when you're mowing around it, that tree, if it's not completely shaded out, say it's a young tree, then that's the best thing to do instead of removing the branch completely is to just stunt the branch back to that mulch ring. So that way it's still producing leaves and those leaves are feeding the trunk right there. And so then the tree is benefiting from that branch still, and you're not getting whacked in the face with it every time you mow. But if it's not, if you're not able to do that, then, and that is a pet peeve of yours, because you do probably mow your lawn once a week, then maybe it's time to think about going in. And it's better to remove them when they're smaller, 
than to wait until they're, you know, the size of your wrist and then go in and chop it off. Well, that sounds like a more of a personal answer than the political one. Right. So I have another one. I know that in Cheyenne, the arborists there are concerned with the emerald ash borer and they're setting traps and that sort of thing. But, you know, we're up here in Troynton. I have two ash trees myself that we got from, I don't know, a bank one day, one arbor day. They were just little sticks. And now, gosh, they're 25 feet tall. So they appear to be healthy. So what can I do to, or is it just a matter of watching that tree and see if it starts to decline in health? What can I do to help my tree? It's good to have a healthy tree to begin with. And that goes back to proper selection, proper planting, proper pruning, and making sure that you're not whacking it with your mower deck every time you go by. Or your weed eater. Or the weed eater, exactly. Or your rototiller, Jerry. Or your rototiller. Don't get too close to trees. Yikes, that would not be good. <laughs> Any way that we stress our trees out, it invites pests. And we have a native ash borer, the lilac ash borer, and it's already been here. It's already been doing some damage. And really, it's going to target trees that are stressed whether it's from overwatering, from damage, or improper planting, say it's too deep. And so if your tree seems to be in good health, it's good to monitor your neighboring states and within your state of where the emerald ash borer is. And it's not really a matter of if it's going to get here, it's a matter of when it's going to get here. And so you kind of have to come with peace that the potential right now might not be high, but the potential down the road might be higher that that insect would be attacking your ash trees and coming along and just saying, oh, look at these yummy trees. I'm just going to feast on these. And then you have a dead tree. And so if you have a declining tree, maybe it's time to think about removing that tree and replacing it with a different species. If you have a rather healthy tree, love it and enjoy it for now and maybe plant another tree next to it. So that way, when it comes time to remove that tree, whether Mm. it by the beetle or by some other act of mother nature, then plant plant another, plant another tree. That's not an ash tree. Plant another tree that is not an ash tree next to it within this, within proximity of it. So that way, when that tree goes away, you don't miss it as much. It doesn't become this big gaping hole in your landscape. It's instead, now it's just, we're going to shift our focus over to this beautiful oak or this beautiful elm or whatever it is that you select. That's called successive planting. Yes. (laughs) Planning for the future. (laughs) Yes. It's important for us to have, be proactive for one, when it comes to trees and not, because we notice when trees are gone when there's a big gaping hole. But if we can plan for no gaping holes and continue to plant, whether it's every five or 10 years, it's still going to make a big difference. You don't have to plant a tree every single year, every spring and fall, but just think about what is the next generation. We have a lot of generation gaps in our community forest and we talk about diversity. And it's important for us to not only have species diversity, but it's also important for us to have age diversity. We want trees of different types and trees of different ages. And so you don't wanna go plant your whole yard all at the same time, which I'm struggling with right now 
because we just purchased our house last fall and we've planted probably over 20 trees on the property. And I'm just telling myself as a forester, Chrissy, you're really excited about planting trees. Let's take a break and plant more in five years. But I don't want to wait for five years. I have seven acres to fill with trees. My husband doesn't think that's a great idea, but... You know, we, we uh, live in an environment where it is hard to get trees to establish. Once they get a good uh, go at it, then we have things like uh, gophers and rabbits and voles and deer. And then if they make it through a lot of that, then we get hail and wind. And <laughs> we, I, right. I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure we aren't supposed to have trees here based on all the stuff <laughs> that can go wrong. We, uh, my wife and I live on a piece of property that we've owned since the 90s. And uh, just this year, we put in a uh, four species, four row, three row to the north of us. Wished we had done it a long time ago, but didn't have access to water up there. So um, am I going to see the shade of those trees? Probably not, but. <laughs> but it will increase the value of your property for your future. Yeah, for the next, the next people will enjoy those trees. Right, right. If you think about it, when we're buying houses, do we want the house that's in the newly developed neighborhood with like tiny stick trees? Or no. do we find the house in the old neighborhood with the big, beautiful trees more appealing? Those yeah. are houses with higher property value. Yeah. Now, that's so, what my wife and I started out with uh, about 30 years ago when we moved here. And it was void of trees. Well, it wasn't void of trees. It had a whole bunch of dead and dying elm trees. And we must have burned successive weekends throughout one whole summer and finally got rid of all those trees. But we started just putting more trees in. And I kept complaining that that was more work for me. Every weekend, Myrna was dragging home another tree. Oh, hey, somebody's offering us a tree if we come dig it up. Oh, my God. Good gosh. What the crap is this yeah but and, you, you were know, younger then and 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 <laughs> able to do that <laughs> and 30 years later gosh we have nice shade we we did put in one new tree it's a rosebud tree but it's a real slow grower and it's the buds have been on it for a long time it's not opening up it doesn't seem like but the thing is the, the point of this story is 30 years later we are enjoying the fruits of our labor and you know, your tree row, you can look at it grow and say, I did that. Yeah. It's a <laughs> satisfaction. It's a hard world to live in to be a tree. Oh, in yeah. Nebraska and Eastern Wyoming. And we just have to accept that it's going to be a challenge. Dig our heels in the dirt and move forward. And there's always opportunity to plan for the future and feel good later on when you get to look back at that planting and say, man, look at that beautiful tree. I planted that. Now, so, Chrissy. Oh, go ahead. I got this, got to look at this little, uh, this little YouTube about seed bombs and they're planting trees inside of like a biodegradable container with a pointy tip. And they throw that out of a C-130 and they say that they can plant like 200,000 trees an hour. I mean, out of that, you'd only expect one out of 10 or one out of 20 to grow. Have you, you would have ever to seen think that? about, I would be interested to know what the deployment method is. Like does the, you know, once it is released from 
the, you know, the cannon or whatever it is that's shooting it, does it bust open and then everything spreads out and then hits the ground? It's deployed by an airplane, a C-130, and it has a pointy tip and it's filled with uh, a little bit of nutrient and that sort of thing. And so it, it hits the ground at about 200 miles an hour and plants it at the appropriate depth. And so is there uh, one seed per thing or are there many seeds per, per, I think that there's, it's an actual little tree. Oh, like a, like a real small tree, you know, like a, okay. Interesting. They, they throw that out and biodegradable container with pointy tips. That's and some fertilizer. ingenuity. Yeah. Uh, and that's mainly for like a fire area, wouldn't it be? Yeah, it would probably be a um, method they would use to uh, reestablish or help give a boost to reestablish a burn footprint um, from a fire. I know that in northwestern Nebraska, around the Shadron area, where they had those bad fires in 2012 and 2006, they're doing a lot of hand planting efforts where a crew will come out and they plant conservation sized trees by hand. And it is amazing to watch those crews go to work, but it's good work that they're doing. They're just helping kind of give that forest a boost to move forward. And again, uh, you have to remember that it's sort of survival of the fittest, you know, whichever ones get placed properly, planted properly and happen to not get stepped on as a young seedling, I mean, just like Jeff said earlier, there's all these things after we plant that come in afterwards, whether it's mother nature or some sort of wildlife that just tries to beat down on those small trees. But in the end, you are at least doing something and helping that forest recoup from such a drastic loss. And it's making a difference, it is. The hazards of being a tree. The hazards of being a tree. Um, so, Chrissy, uh, you know, as we're talking about community forestry, how do you? Uh, I uh, I wrote an article about um, emerald ash borer a couple months ago for uh, one of our University of Wyoming publications, and some of the data that I found was um, placing a value on community forests. You know, a numerical value. I think in Wyoming there were uh, at the time of the this survey went out, it was the mid nineties. And they really stated that there's only three species of trees that live in the community forests in Wyoming and ash trees was one of the three. So if we have a pest that comes in and attacks these things and we really have no defense mechanism for it, you know, that can be a significant loss to those community forests. And I think I'm not certain that people totally understand that, that all of these ash trees could potentially be gone from our state. Uh, it's happening in other places. Um, so, you know, it has a real significant impact, not only visually, but also the value of the community forest goes down, right? So, right. So we use some tools, a lot of data collection tools. So when we're looking at the population of the community forest with these tools, we are evaluating the data and we're trying to figure out, you know, we're, we're going along this 10, 20, 30 rule where you don't want more than 10% of any one species, no more than 20% of any one genus or 30% of any family. And really it's those first two that we pay attention 
Because if you imagine, so we think about like the buying mentality. Say mm-hmm. for some reason this year, the fad is that everybody needs to wear blue. And so we go to the store and we have the option to buy blue, red, yellow, and green. And everybody buys blue and they take blue home. And now everyone in the whole community has blue in their homes, right? The same thing happens with trees and nurseries. For some reason, this year, this new hot tree, whether it be a red sunset maple or an ash tree, and many years ago, ash tree was the fad for the year. Everybody went home with an ash tree. It was the Arbor Day. It was a tree that got handed out at Arbor Day events. And so a mass number of of ash trees were planted because they were the fad for that, that time because they were everybody was told this is a tree that will grow in our environment. So everybody's like, oh yeah, that's the one that I want. Give it to me. So then if everyone in the community goes home and does this, now we've increased the population of that one species. So our tree inventory tells us, you know, where, what's our balance? Because now say we have a bug that comes in and only eats the blue and only eats the ash Now, everybody with that ash, that tree is potentially going to be, you know, lost. They're devastated because they've invested 25 years in this tree. Exactly. And it's going to leave a big hole in their landscape. Right, 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 Jerry? I am one of those who are feeling blue right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, imagine... Imagine the homeowner who just bought, you know, six acres or something, and they have this big, long drive that they want to, you know, invest in trees, and they want to plant trees along their drive, and they go and they plant, say, 30 or 40 ash trees to line their drive, and they planted them all the same species, all the same, and this is down to, like, a homeowner's perspective, and then if you amplify this to a whole community's perspective, you could potentially end up losing that whole drive at once of trees. And then say the rest of the community did that. Then all of a sudden you've lost 10% of your canopy cover and all of the benefits that go with it. And the beautiful part of the data collection is that we can use a system known as iTree that was developed by scientists and research that actually gives a monetary number to your tree and to all of your trees that tells you the value of your community forest and tells you the value of the different things that it's doing. Is it increasing property value? Is it helping your stormwater management system? Is it providing benefit to your markets? Like all of these different metrics we can look at and identify. So then we can sort of predict what sort of impact is this going to have on our community forest and how can we be proactive and try and mitigate all of that, where we can start selecting, you know, the dead and dying ash trees and replacing them with a species diversity. And we don't want to repeat the past. We want to learn from the past. And so instead of removing all ash trees and going and planting all oak or all elm, and then we have something else that happens. And I tell people, so we think about, you know, three things that we know fairly common. So we know emerald ash borer with ash. We know pine wilt with scotch pine. And then we also know Dutch elm disease with elm. So imagine you have a whole community forest that is 10% of each of those. And say for some reason, the stars line up and you now are hit with all three of those at the same time, 
then there goes your entire community forest. And you are exposed to the hot summer sun. You're exposed to the cold winter winds. And you're unhappy because your environment is not friendly. You don't want to be there. Everybody wants to be under the shade of a big tree. So diversity is key, correct? Diversity is key. Diversity in species, diversity in planting, uh, you know, so you have a canopy of different ages and a healthy right. a healthy home forest really is right. what you're looking for, right? Yeah. If everybody does their part of having a healthy home forest, then we have healthy community forests. And we as humans try our best to damage, wound, and kill our trees. Pretty <laughs> <Too> much. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm sure you have seen this. I've been on uh, calls in a lot of different places, and it's like, uh, yeah, that one's dead. Um, you're going to have to give up on it. And it's you induced it. I'm sorry, but you did it. Right. Sometimes it's so hard to accept defeats, especially when we are the cause of the problem. Yeah. So that those things where you ask your nephew or your younger siblings or someone else other than you to mow your lawn and you go, but don't hit my tree. Uh, weed eating, don't whack my tree. Come on, man. <laughs> That's where those mulch rings come in yeah. handy. Really handy. But Jerry, it's not only the people of the younger generation. Those of us who own and manage and care for it also damage our own trees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. That's that's a true story there. <laughs> Here, let me uh, put this pe- piece of barbed wire around this tree for, uh, you know, ever. <laughs> let me and forget a, about it. Let me put this bird feeder up and let me smack a couple nails into the tree. Right. Uh, I can't remember where I was at just recently where I uh, was looking up into the canopy and I believe that the tree at one time had a split in it and there was actually a uh, piece of webbing like um, from a toe strap inserted through the tree. I couldn't see it on the backside, but it had this loop sticking out about eight feet up. (laughs) That was part of the tree now. So, we, we do odd things to our... Yeah. Jeff, let me tell you a story about my neighbor. They had a honey locust that came up and had two large branches. And uh, during one heavy, heavy windstorm, it started splitting down the middle. So they drilled through the, the Y of the tree with a bolt mm-hmm. and stuck it through there and then started cranking that up so that... And their tree survived for a number of years that way. Yeah, it is, it is a common fix to do that. The other thing would probably be to take that tree out. Yeah, slack it. Over. <laughs> start over. I'm to sure if you spoke to their homeowner's insurance, the latter would have been the option instead of the, what they did. Strapping yeah. it together. Yeah, I've, I've they, they would that. say take it down. Yeah, I've seen that done many occasions because we do have, you know, uh, our life invested in those trees and it's, it's hard to give them up. But the thing is, as well, when you talk about homeowner's insurance, the homeowner's insurance will pay for the damage the tree creates. But as you said, the tree has value, but the homeowner's insurance doesn't seem to think that that tree is worth anything unless it buries into your house and creates damage. Right. Interesting, they're, interesting. They're only worried about the liability of it. Yeah, there you are. 
Right, exactly. Um, okay, so we've talked about the Emerald Ash Borer, Chrissy. Can you describe it? How big is it? I, I understand that, but can you describe it for our listeners and where it came from and, you know, why is it a problem now? Those types of things. Yeah. So the most important thing to understand is that we have a native tree and a non-native insect. And the research goes back and identifies the tree, or not the tree, the insect being found in Detroit, Michigan in 2012 for the first time. It was the first confirmed sighting of this insect. It's an Asian insect. So if it's an Asian, if it's an Asian insect, how did it get here? Well, that's the fun question. We think, oh, it just like got here, it flew here or something. Well, no, all insects actually, the, the fastest way that they move across a vast space, whether it be an ocean or a large piece of land or across the United States is by people. And it's our processes of ordering and shipping and moving firewood that actually moves those insects around. And so it was found in, it's believed to have been transported over in some pallet wood that came over with a shipment. And ultimately what happened, so this beetle, it's beetle, and um, beetles metamorphosize. They go from an egg to a larva, like a caterpillar, and then they metamorphosize into a beetle, kind of like a butterfly, goes through that process. And so while it's in the larval stage, it's feeding on the outer layers right underneath the bark of the ash tree. And if they are in that lumber and say we harvest that tree to use for lumber, then that beetle could potentially, that larva could potentially still be in that lumber. And then we use that lumber to build things like pallets to be able to move produce or merchandise, whatever, across the the ocean. So then we bring it over, not even realizing what we're doing. And then that beetle, you know, that larva metamorphosizes and then it emerges as an adult and say that instead of bringing over like two or three pallets, we brought over like 5,000 pallets and every single pallet was infested with the larva of this beetle. Well, now we've brought over enough to sustain a population and those beetles emerge. They go and find a beautiful feast of ash trees and that nobody else is living bicycle. in. Yeah, exactly. Nobody else is touching those ash trees. So it's like a whole new world of just food. So then we have the challenge of usually we don't catch the population until the population is actually quite large. So what year was that? What year was it detected in Detroit? 2002. 2002. So 18 years, right? 18 years, right. And you can go to the USDA's website and Google Emerald Ashbore, and it'll show you a series of maps that show you how this beetle has expanded. Well, if you think about it, when you show up to a new world with a bunch of great food and a great place to live, then you are going to be happy and merry, and you're going to reproduce a lot, and you're going to spread your way about. And if people don't realize yet of your presence, then we go about our business doing normal things where we harvest lumber, we make products, and we ship products around. And those things continue to happen until the beetle is actually confirmed when the population has increased. So over time, it's moved its way sort of south and then east and then west. And then all of a sudden, 
I think it was in 2012, the insect was first found in Colorado and it was kind of an anomaly. Like all of a sudden there's this big dense area over by the Great Lakes and then like, boom, there's just this one spot in Colorado where the beetle has been found. In Boulder. Yep, in Boulder. And I was at a seminar last last year and one of their entomologists from the Colorado Department of Ag was talking to us about this and the quarantine. So then they come in and they say, okay, we now have a quarantine. You can't move lumber. You can't move any sort of ash products. We're trying to restrict this. And she kind of told us that, you know, because we can't detect the insect for the first time until it's been there for maybe two or three years. Right. And, um, you know, the quarantines are kind of not as beneficial as we thought they might have been. And so it becomes this challenge because then people continue to go about their business and, you know, say I, for example, so we just recently in the last couple of years uh, have confirmed Emerald Ash Borer in far eastern Nebraska. And, you know, there's a lot of people who travel to Lincoln and around that area for Husker football games. And if you think about it, I go down there, I decide, oh, I'm going to have a tailgate party. I need some firewood. I'm going to go buy some firewood. It might be ashwood. I'm going to take it to the tailgate. Dang it. I didn't use all my ashwood. I'm not going to waste this. I'm going to take, take it home back home and drive clear back across the state because I don't know anything about the quarantine. And then next thing you know, you've potentially, whether you've got enough to sustain a population or not, but it's really by people doing normal people things and moving insects around that we don't realize. And even when we go out of state and we buy nursery stock and we bring it back, you know, there's a lot of rules and regulations about what you can purchase and move across state lines. And so it's, it's important to be aware of emerging pests like emerald ash borer and know things of good practices. What are the best management practices? How do I play my part in helping reduce the speed of the, the spread? You know, we, we're all very familiar with the term flattening the curve. And we can think of that with this insect is that we're playing our part to flatten the curve and slow the insect down. So that we, saw, we saw exactly the same type of distribution with the mountain pine beetle into right. Torrington. Uh, one particular instance, there was cut firewood right underneath the pine, and the pine was totally infested with mountain pine beetle, and it came from that pile of wood that was underneath it. So you you don't want to be patient zero <laughs> for, right. a, for a new insect infestation uh, right. in the area. <laughs> well, and that's where I say, you know, it's important to know what your neighbors are doing because Torrington is literally a 25, 30, 45 minute drive from Scotts Bluff. I mean, it depends on how fast you're driving and which way you take, but Right. I, I mean, that, it doesn't take much. I, how many people from Torrington are driving to Scotts Bluff to go shop at Walmart and, or to go to Lake Minotaire or even going to Guernsey Reservoir, like all of those different places that you might be transporting firewood. And so we really emphasize burn it where you buy it and don't move wood. It doesn't matter. Try, try to keep it as local as possible. If right. You're, to buy firewood, buy it within your county. Don't buy it clear across the state or across state lines and bring it back to your community because yep. you never know. It could be, you know, something 
an elm, it could be walnut, it could be pine, it could be ash, it could, it could be all different kinds of things. It's hard to keep track of all of those things. So it's just easier for us to keep in mind in the back of our heads, buy it or burn it where you buy it. So um, I hate to interrupt, but I think it's time for a break or overtime for a break to listen to our sponsors. So here's a couple words from our sponsors and we'll be back right after this. You are listening to the Lawn and Garden Podcast, presented by University of Wyoming Extension, extending the land-grant mission across the state of Wyoming with a wide variety of educational programs and services. Visit us at yoextension.org. Looking for the best way to keep up with all the news from University of Wyoming Extension, the College of Agriculture, and Wyoming Ag Experiment Stations? The uwagnews.com website features real-time education, research, and extension events, and feature stories from across the state. Bookmark uwagnews.com today and subscribe to our monthly email newsletter. uwagnews.com, growing people, knowledge, and communities. All right, we're back. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshebeck with the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. Our guest today is Chrissy Land, and we are spending time talking about uh, the health and welfare of community forests. We've spent a lot of time on uh, emerald ash borer, but you had mentioned also in uh, a conversation that we had a little bit earlier about there's another one that's maybe on the horizon. I don't know if you wanted to talk about it or not, but uh, I think people, since we've kind of prepped people for the emerald ash borer and there's other things that may be showing up, do you want to share any of that information? Yeah. So just recently, the Nebraska Department of Ag, we'll touch on it briefly. Sure. Nebraska Department of Ag um, released an announcement followed by the Nebraska Forest Service about um, the first confirmed collection of walnut twig beetle in Gearing, Nebraska. And it's the first confirmed collection in the state of Nebraska. So as a walnut twig beetle, what, uh, what trees might be under threat from it? It's going to be our black walnut that we're going to be most most concerned of watching. Darn, and that's a tree that grows really well in Wyoming and southeastern Wyoming. <laughs> right. We're in this world that it's becoming harder and harder to be a tree. Yeah. <laughs> and what, so they, they have been doing, so you talked about earlier, um, some traps with, in Cheyenne for Emerald Cash because they kind of want to be ahead of the game. And so... That's a lot of work that our Department of Ags do, is that they go out and they set these traps, which are loaded with a pheromone, which is a scent. And basically it's saying that if there is a population, it will hopefully draw in one or two or many of that population so that they can try and detect it earlier when the population is small. So that way we can learn as much about it as we possibly can uh, before providing too much information about how do we manage this now? Like this is a new challenge, this is a new problem, now what do we do? And so it's good for us to have those traps because then it does give us a little bit of a proactive edge on things. And so they did set some traps, the Nebraska Department of Ag set some traps across the state and they do a survey each each season. And the last year's set of traps I believe it was last year's set of traps, was successful in capturing a walnut twig beetle 
on the golf course in the city of Gearing. And basically they have investigated it and they've said that they've only found the beetle. But the challenge that comes with it is that sometimes like pine wilt, we have a beetle and a other pest that comes along with it, whether it be a fungus, a disease, bacteria of some sort. So Chrissy, you mentioned that the, the beetle itself isn't necessarily the, the real problem for the trees, correct? Right. So the beetle carries or can carry a fungus that causes what we know as thousand cankers disease. And basically what happens is that the beetle, which is very, very tiny, goes into the twigs, walnut twig beetle. They're really fancy at naming insects. It's a beetle that affects walnut twigs. And it goes in and it creates a hole and it starts feeding on the twigs, on the, the nice fresh growth on the twigs. And then what happens is that if it's carrying that fungus, then it can then inoculate the tree or infect the tree with that fungus. And what happens is that the fungus creates a canker. And I've always explained cankers to the public as basically cancer for trees. There's not much that can be done about it besides pruning it out. And if you imagine thousands and thousands of these little walnut twig beetles chewing on every single branch of your tree and then infecting your tree with the fungus, thousand cankers disease, then all of your branch tips that are producing all of that energy for the tree are now affected and your tree is going to die a slow death. And so, so again, removal, <laughs> right? But we the best course of action, right? And we know walnut twig beetle has had a big impact along the front range with the fungus and causing thousand cankers disease in walnut. And there's a lot of walnut that had to be removed because of it. However, they have only found the beetle, and so they have released a statement saying, "Hey, we found the beetle. We have not confirmed the fungus." So we're all sort of crossing our fingers that just the beetle, because if it is just the beetle, it's okay. Um, For the most part, it's not as detrimental. It's not as big of a deal if it's carrying the fungus. And so this season, they are going to do a much further investigation to see if they can identify any beetles carrying the fungus or any branches that are infected with the fungus. And so the city of Gearing um, park staff, is following all recommendations by the Nebraska Department of Ag and the Nebraska Forest Service of what to do. And at this time, they really don't want them to cut those trees down or start removing any walnut because they want to do some more investigation. But they have strictly said that if any trees do need to come down for the event of a windstorm or some other sort of damage, then it's best to chip, burn, and bury on site. Or, you know, basically don't move it. Try to keep it within your community. Don't move it around. Don't use the mulch. Yes. Don't, yeah, don't chip the mulch and then go put it in your landscape, you know, in Torrington, Wyoming. Right. So, um, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. I've, I've, um, bought a new tree and what are the things that I need to think about? If I think I know where I want to put it, what are the things that I need to think about in order to give it the best chance for surviving and maybe outliving myself? There's a number of things. I would first suggest that you confirm the growing space that you have. And 
So you're imagining where you want to plant this tree and you need to look at the tag and identify what's the mature size of this tree. Is it going to be a small tree, a medium tree, or a large tree? So let's say 60 feet. Oh boy. 60 feet tall. That's going to be, that's going to be a big shade tree. Right. So you need to go and look up and make sure that you don't have any power lines over your spot. Uh, make sure that you don't plant it two feet away from your house where it's going to interact with the gutters or the eaves of your house. So that's 60 feet tall. How wide is the tree? Oh, 30 to 40 feet. So uh, okay. I guess what I'm thinking, and I'm, I didn't do this personally, but what I'm thinking is, you know, you go to the nursery and you buy a Colorado blue spruce and it's this cute little, maybe three foot tall tree at the time. Uh-huh. But they get big and people don't right. think about that, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it's so important to look at that tag and see what the mature size is because... So the reason I asked you what's the width of your tree, so you said 30 to 40 feet. So let's even, even let's imagine that it's going to be a Colorado blue spruce. So we know that the canopy, the branches are going to be all the way to the ground, unless someone comes in and whacks them all up and limbs that tree up. Because they were in interfering with the mowing, right? Because Jerry? they were interfering with the mowing. Well, That's we need right. to create a bed big enough for this tree <laughs> to grow in or continue to increase it as the tree grows. So if the tree is going to be 30 feet wide, then half that distance from the trunk to the tip of the branches is going to be 15 feet. So we know that we need to plant it at least 15 feet away from our house or anything else. And honestly, give it an extra five feet for wiggle room because no tree grows perfectly symmetrical. And that 30 feet might be perfect on center, but it might be shifted a little off center as that tree grows for light and nutrients. And so give that tree some wiggle room to grow. And then, so we've talked about looking up, but now we also need to look down. And before you plant the tree, it's best to call Digger's Hotline. In Nebraska, it's 811. It is in Wyoming as well. Okay. Because if you are in town or in the country, it doesn't matter. You need to have them come and locate underground utilities like electric, gas, phone lines, anything. There's water lines. There's all sorts of things. And especially if you're going to think about planting in the right of way along the curb in between the curb and the sidewalk, there's a pretty high chance that there's some sort of water line running right down the middle of that thing. And and if you cut those lines, you are liable for lost business or lost services. So it is very important. And it's it's free. Yeah. It's free. You literally, you call them, you tell them what you're going to do. You mark your area with a white flag. They come, whoever potentially might have something in your area, those services will come, they will locate them, and they will flag them. If they don't have something in your area, they'll put a flag in your yard that says clear, basically saying you don't have anything in your yard. And so I previously did this. I live six miles west of Scotts Bluff. And I'm on a county road out in the middle of nowhere. We're ripping up our whole front yard and redoing everything. I called 811 before I started planting. They came, Nebraska Public Power District said, you're clear. But then the phone company came and said, oh, hey, you have a line right here. Be careful and only dig by hand. And so it's like, you know, there's all of these services, even phone lines that we have to think about uh, what's underground. And I tell you, working for a landscaping company, 
we have this magical power of selecting tree placement (laughs) over the sprinkler line or right over some sort of line. And it it, like every time I swear it wasn't every time, but it was a lot of times. So um, if I can relate a story this past weekend, I worked on replacing a frost free hydrant that had not drained correctly and froze and it completely split the pipe from the head all the way down into the soil. Okay. So it took me a day to dig. It was a five foot berry hydrant. So it took me a day to hand dig to where it needed to be. I was working around other water lines and I had to go through uh, tree roots all the way down to the bottom of it. So at five feet down, there were still tree roots that I was cutting through and the primary reason for that particular hydrant to not be draining correctly, the tree roots had gotten into the drain and basically grown around the base of that hydrant five feet down. So right. when you're planting your trees, right. <laughs> looking in down in the ground and thinking about what's there, uh, it's yeah. just as important as looking up. Yeah, it's important to know where your water lines are, where your septic lines are, all of those things, because trees are opportunistic. And and it may not be a problem for you. Right. In, in yeah. your Later down the road, you're going to be spending a lot of money to be repairing that pipe or calling the plumber to come rooter out your, your line. But it, Jerry, it's like those legacy plants. I'm telling you that you're leaving behind for your family. Yes. It, it can be a legacy problem for the next. <laughs> <laughs> now, now is there, is there a, a, one other thing when you buy a tree from the nursery, generally they have it in a position. And I think they call it facing the tree. So if, uh, if you can, before you take it away from the nursery, do you look at the north, south, east, west portion of it? Or when you take that tree home, do you just position it so, it, hey, it looks really good like this, let's go. Right. So after you've done all of the previous groundwork, look up, look around you, and look below ground. Because we also don't want to plant five feet away from the sidewalk or five feet away from the stop sign on the corner that our tree is going to then block in 10 years. So then now it's time to think about, okay, we're going to put this tree in the ground. And you have to think about what stock is your tree? Is it a bald and burlap? Is it a container tree? Is it a grow bag tree? Like what sort of system is containing the roots? And it's important to understand that containers are temporary. When we go to the store and we buy fish, they put them in a plastic bag and they send them home. Trees and containers are the same thing. Trees are only meant to be in containers. It's, it's the product, the, the production package. And literally, its only purpose is to get that tree from the growing nursery to the selling nursery to the planting site and it makes transportation easy. And so when we bring the tree home, usually there's something, some sort of container on the roots, whether it's one of the previous that I said, there might be some sort of support to keep it from whipping around while it's being transported because young trees do not have strong bones yet. And there's usually a tag identifying what kind of tree it is. And there might be a series of other marking pieces on it. And so it's all packaging. 
So it's important for us. And I think it's easier to remove all of that packaging before we even think about planting the tree. And then once you're done removing all that packaging, because if we leave a tag on, like we talked about the barbed wire earlier, in many years down the road, the tag could potentially be girdling the growth. But now we set the tree in the ground and it's important to step back and look at it and see, you know, which way are the branches growing? And if you think about long-term, how high do I want the lowest branch? Do I want the lowest branch at the height of my head, which is five feet, which means every branch below five feet is temporary. And I want to look at the branches above five feet and determine which direction they're growing because I don't want to position my tree with that five foot branch pointed right at my house or right across the street. And so then we can think about positioning the tree. Some nurseries will position, most don't. They just get them off the truck, stand them out, and put them in a line for you to go down the row and pick out which so one. So, Chrissy, I have, a, uh, I have a personal problem involving a tree. I believe it's a type of a hawthorn that I purchased. Probably had been in the ground two years now. Uh, could not get it so that it would stand up straight, so I braced it. I've removed the bracing. It still isn't straight. Can I, my, my plan is now, can I go in on the low side and pull off all the topsoil and try to get in underneath that and lift that tree and put soil underneath it so that it actually straightens it up? Or am I just now going to be with, at the whim of the tree, whatever it wants to do? How much of a gambling man are you? one with a personal problem yeah i'm not opposed i'm not opposed to taking a risk or two um you know it's it uh, it's one of those trees that we planted in a place that i look at every day my wife goes man i wish we would have planted that thing straight so it just wouldn't go in the hole straight and it just it now it leans so how crooked is it how crooked is it well the tree itself is straight but it's probably leaning 10 degrees off Straight? Maybe so, more? So, I would say you either love it for the unique tree that it is and let, let it be and just tell people that it's an ornamental and that it's intentionally supposed to be that way and they'll accept that it's a good tree and that it's supposed to look that way. Because if you were to walk through the woods, how many trees are straight up and down? The tree will grow just fine. It's, the majority of them. It's your specific <laughs> desire to have that tree grow straight up and down. But it is the only tree looking that direction. It, it's the only okay. tree on that side of the house. Right. So, so you can take the chance. So you said it's a hawthorn. Is there anything growing below it? No, it's in the corner of our lot, and I have a couple of shrubs on either side of it. But probably how, how big are the shrubs, and how big is your planting space? I don't know, probably 20 foot in diameter. It's um, The shrubs are farther away from it. So I, my suggestion would be to get a shrub that's going to grow about five to six feet tall and plant it in front of the trunk so you don't you, have to look at it. Now you're just camouflaging the problem. You're not. <laughs> you're just accepting it the way it is. So if the trees, the reason I say go this route, if the tree's been in the ground for two years and it's established and you go in and you start interacting with the root system, you're going to set that tree back. 
And depending on how well established it is or how healthy the tree is, you are potentially going to gamble losing that tree by interfering with the roots. When we have big, beautiful trees growing along a sidewalk that's starting to crack and raise and we blame the roots, really the crack happened first and the tree's root system was opportunistic, found oxygen and water in that crack and started growing. Well, then we come in and we tear up that concrete, we chop the roots off, and then we lay a new pad. Three to five years later, that tree starts fine because we cut half of its root system off. Even if you were gentle and... Even if its diameter is no more than two inches. Two inches. Okay. So it's still a young tree. Like you are safe enough in this, like you don't want to wait six years and then decide that you want to do this. Now is the time to say, oh shoot, like we should have done something. I guess maybe we can try something still. But yeah, go in and very gently dig on the side opposite of the lean. And then you will also want to go and loosen the soil on the side of the lean and all the way out to the tips of your branches. So you're going to be digging quite a big wide hole. So that way when you go to stand the tree up, you're not snapping the the roots that are on the lean side of the tree. So we're going to loosen the soil basically all the way around the tree, go in on the opposite lean side, and try to remove some of that excess soil from up underneath the root ball. And by now that root ball is at least a foot deep, if not deeper, the majority of it. Those little feeder roots are gonna be all the way out to the tips of the branches. You can remove some of that soil, loosen it, and then stand it up straight, backfill the soil. But the thing is, is that you have to think of a teeter-totter When one side drops, the other side goes up. And now you're going to have a gap underneath the other side, underneath the root ball, that also needs to be filled. And so you're almost removing it from one side to put it on the other side. And so you have to interact with the whole root system. You can't just dig on one side, pull until it's straight, shove some dirt back in the ground, and then walk away. Darn (laughs) <laughs> now, work out so well. Now, Chrissy, would you suggest digging a moat around that tree then to uh, put water in the moat and making all that soil really loose? You know. And then maybe pulling it over with a, a stick? It depends on what type of soil you have. Because if you have clay soil, that's going to be really wet and heavy. As you start tugging on those roots, that weight is going to be on the small root system, and it's going to snap those roots off. If you have sand that's going to sort of like shift among itself as it moves around, you have less of a chance of breaking those small feeder roots. So I have 92% sand, just so you know. Okay. Well, then you could get away with watering it. You don't want to do this with like a totally saturated ground, and you don't want to do it with a totally dry ground. Mm. Kind of in, in the middle somewhere. And then afterwards... The aftercare is you are going to treat it like a freshly planted tree and water it regularly throughout this year and then water it probably into next year because you're basically setting the tree back and you're doing a transplant shock. And it's said that a tree will go through one year of transplant shock per inch of caliper. So if it is a two inch caliper tree, the trunk is two inches wide you're potentially going to set that tree back for two years and you won't see new growth happily for a couple of years. Okay. 
Good to know. I say camouflage the problem. Just leave the tree alone. <laughs> if it's happy and growing, just plant a beautiful okay, I'll, shrub I'll right in front of it. I'll consider the alternative. <laughs> Let it go, Elsa. Yeah, Let yeah. it go. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that that letting it go part is a discussion with my wife. <laughs> More information Just, that I ever even thought of about a leaning tree. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Just accept you know, the beauty of its uniqueness. Okay. All That's right. That's what you we can will, tell your wife. We will consider it a unique tree. I think that we have burnt up another hour. So, uh, Jerry, do you have any parting comments that you would like to make? Uh, parting comments. We have given away one set of giant pumpkin seeds. We have one more set of giant pumpkin seeds to get rid of. And uh, Oh, don't say it like that. You're, you're not oh, getting get, you're not. No, no, no. You're, 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 encouraging, <laughs> you're encouraging others to <laughs> grow giant pumpkins. So should you want to grow a giant pumpkin from a giant pumpkin grower, he actually, Alan Corbin won the Wyoming record holder last year. He lives in Cheyenne. He's donated these pumpkin seeds to us. I think his pumpkin was like 1,440 pounds, huge pumpkin. And he's willing to give and donate these pumpkin seeds to our giant pumpkin growing committee to give out to the general populace if they can answer a simple question. And based on our earlier conversation, Chrissy, would you, uh, would you have something in mind? Yes. What are the two types of diversity that we talked about? that are best practices to have in the community forest. All right. Oh, yeah. Ask that, ask that question again. That was kind of a difficult one, I think. What are the two types of diversity that we spoke about that are best practices to have for proactive management of the community forest? All right. And the first caller with those correct answers Call 532-2158. That's 532-2158. KGS, KERM, and give your answer. Get those pumpkin seeds, and please give your name and your phone number, and we will send those seeds to you. If we send them to them, we will also need their address, Jerry. And address, you bet. All right. So, and it's not too late to grow a giant pumpkin. It's not too late to set that into the ground. Perfect. Very good. Uh, Chrissy, thank you once again for being our guest. I think we might have to do it again, uh, maybe in the fall, if you're up for it. I would love to be here every month. You just, <laughs> this is fun. Okay. This is fun. It is fun. Thank you very much for being here. Um, we will see you all next week. You've been listening to Lawn and Garden with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Next week, we welcome Gary Stone, University of Nebraska Extension Educator. Thanks for listening.